0: guys, welcome to the show. For this episode, I brought on Chris Hicken. He's a founder of NuffSaid. Basically, in this episode, what we talk about is one subject is kind of investments and obviously the zero to ones with his company in particular. We also talk a little bit about just entrepreneurial mindset and success mentality. He gives his points of what he learned throughout his life going through entrepreneurship and growing the business that he's started. Don't forget to follow uh, the podcast, subscribe to it, share it with a friend if you enjoy listening to it. Other than that stuff, uh, I hope that you enjoy this episode. All right, Chris, are you ready to rock and roll? I'm ready to do this. Let's do it. Okay, Chris, so just to to start off here, quickly just introduce uh, yourself so we know who you are, what you do, and then uh, we can go
1: from there. Sure. Chris Hicken. I'm co-founder and CEO of NufSed. Uh, I was recently president and COO of a company called User Testing, an enterprise software company. So I left there to start Nuff Said about a year and a half ago. I am based in Salt Lake City, Utah. Uh, I'm a big fan of scuba diving, um, oh, wow. enthusiast car driving, uh, <laughs> and I'm just getting into skiing now that I'm here in Utah. So that's, that's my story. Wow.
0: So you're just getting into skiing. Did you grow up?
1: Did you grow up in Salt Lake City or or just Utah in general? I grew up in California, and then we spent a year in a little town called Durango, Colorado, where I started to ski, and of course, enjoying all the wonderful mountains here in uh, in Utah. I mean, you have to. For me, I, I grew up in Utah County,
0: and I haven't been on a mountain skiing or snowboarding ever. I think once. And so I get a lot of heat from it, from friends I have that ski every season. But it's just kind of priorities, I guess, in that case. So,
1: Well, it's always the grass just... is greener, right? You probably want to be on the beach <laughs> since you grew up in the mountains.
0: Exactly. Yeah. I was born in California, too. So I guess deep down in my heart, I'm more of a, a, a beach guy. So, so, Chris, to get started with the interview here, I just want to obviously get on the right foot. I usually ask a random question. Uh, to the guests, based on my research and the one that I had for you I wanted to hear was I think it was on your LinkedIn you said that you were an artist at heart or you were born an artist in your description or your bio so I just wanted to know what kind of what kind of artist were you mentioning it didn't it didn't give a detailed description of what type but why uh why was it on there what was what was the purpose and what kind of artist uh are you I guess
1: Yeah, well, you know, growing up as a kid, I was constantly drawing colored pencil, charcoal, acrylic. I thought for sure I was going to grow up to be an artist. But at the same time, actually, I also really, really loved computers. I loved programming. So when it was time to apply to colleges, I uh, divided up 50 50. So half the colleges I applied to an art major, half the colleges I applied to a computer science major. And I ended up getting accepted to Cal Poly, which is, um, you know, kind of mid-Central uh, California. Really, really, really good engineering school. And I love the campus. So probably not even that thoughtfully, I went and ended up going the, the computer yeah. science route. But I, I very much kept, you know, I kept up my art skills and just developed other outlets for expressing kind of my creativity. So I ended up doing a lot of web design. I've, you know, probably have built... 100 plus websites where I've designed them and built them from yeah. scratch. And so, and then also uh, for most of the companies I've joined, I've did, I have did a lot of the initial design work. So that's how I keep my creative outlets inspired, <laughs> yeah. despite being mostly in a technical, technically oriented company or companies in the past.
0: Yeah. Well, I, uh, I've taken a couple of computer science classes uh, in my time of going to university. And I feel like being able to code and do all those things is an art in and of itself. There's a, there's many different ways to code the same thing. So, I mean, take it for what it is, but I feel like it's art in, in some degree. So you kind of knocked out two birds with, with one stone yeah. in my so, mind. <laughs> yeah. So
1: what I'd say is, you know, uh, a true computer science degree is a math degree. So yeah. it's very, it's very analytical, you know, uh, strength and, in, in algorithms, logical thinking that's, must have to be really good in the discipline of computer science. And I think that the art, uh, I think what, you know, I, I agree with you that there are, there's an opportunity even in programming to express creative thinking and problem solving. And that's probably where you take advantage of those maybe out of the box creative skills. 100%.
0: So Chris, uh, let's jump into the story of, of Nuff said here. Based on what I know from, from research I did prior to this interview, there wasn't much walking through kind of the growth of the company it still is pretty young according to what i know but why don't we start out you you started describing a little bit of your early life leading up to entrepreneurship i just want to touch on that a little bit maybe give what's most important on how it led up to entrepreneurship just describe kind of what led you to the business path and and how you eventually got to growing the company enough said
1: yeah so I guess the, the full context of my story is that I went to a Tony Robbins conference when I was oh, wow. you know, maybe in my early 20s. And one of the most impactful thing he said in the entire conference was how important it was to set a big goal for yourself. You know, and, and actually Arnold Schwarzenegger gave a talk recently with a kind of a similar message, which is make sure that you have a big, hairy, ambitious goal for yourself. And so I did that. I was in my early 20s and I set a very ambitious goal for myself. And what was nice about setting that goal was it made my career choices very easy because there's there were a very limited number of paths I could take to end up hitting my goal. And so my my path to entrepreneurship, I, I knew that in order to be a good entrepreneur, I had to learn from other great business people, learn how to start companies, learn how to develop my skill as a leader and as a manager. And so the I, I worked at a couple of different companies, but the most recent company, uh, User Testing, where I was president and COO for eight years, I was able to work with a ton of very gifted leaders, managers, people who are functionally excellent in their respective areas. And after eight years at User Testing, I felt like I had the, the skill and the experience and the know-how to go out and start a company on my own and be, and be successful. So that's what led me to starting my own company. But I, I, I invested a, you know, a fairly significant chunk of my early career learning from others, finding really great mentors, and developing my skills to improve the chances that I would be successful as an entrepreneur.
0: Yeah, so, so based on what you said, I kind of want to piggyback off of what you just were talking about. For a younger entrepreneur, someone that is, that is interested in business and, and getting into the space, how how would they, in your mind, set themselves up properly to make sure they see success with whatever businesses it it is in tech, food, whatever they they want to go into? How would they set themselves up best in your mind, going through what you have leading up to starting your your business? Basically, what would you say here, to I'm <laughs> just trying to figure out from what Chris said if someone isn't going to start a business or get into entre- entrepreneurship like right at this moment. the next couple weeks i'm trying to see how they can set themselves up if they're going to school uh, working jobs doing all these other things trying to also see success but not wanting to hop into business right now this is why i asked that question just so that those people can sort of understand how they can set themselves up
1: when they do eventually want to start a business well there's probably too much To cover to answer that question in a brief response, but I, but, but since we were just talking about mentorship, I can double click on that, that topic, which is my belief in mentorship is that there's three different types of mentors you need in your life to help you be successful, you need a mentor who is your age with a similar level of ambition. This is someone who you who kind of can empathize with where you are in your career and life, someone you can bounce ideas off of, some you can be a little bit vulnerable with with your business ideas. And they're they're going to be very direct and honest with you about their experiences, and you can be, you know, kind of like partners and teammates in growing and developing together. So that's mentor, mentor number one about your age. Mentor number two is someone who is maybe two to three years ahead of you, maybe it could even be four or five years ahead of you, but it's the person who has the next job that you want to have. So In the case of an early stage entrepreneur, it's probably, uh, you know, it's a fellow entrepreneur who has a small business uh, of about the size that you want to have in a couple of years. That mentor is really important because they're going to help you see around some early corners that you just can't see right now because you don't have the experience to go through it. You don't want them to be too far ahead in their career because they if they get too far ahead, they forget about all the pain they had to go through <laughs> in the early yeah. days of I can't entrepreneurship. Recall the information. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's just it, it's that it, you know it's kind of like they've forgotten that pain. And the third mentor that you need is someone who's quite a bit older than you. This is someone who, probably at least twenty years older than you. This is the person who can look at you and tell you that you're being an absolute idiot without being condescending. Um, so this is someone who's seen the world. They have really good perspective on what's important in life, and they can help you put your goals and life and, and ambitions into perspective with the greater world that's very difficult to see with your current level of experience. Yeah. So that's that's how I think about mentorship. It's really those th- three things. Someone who's your age, someone who's two to three years older, who ha- who has the job that you want to have, and then someone who's quite a bit older, maybe 20, 20 plus years older than you are.
0: Yeah, I think it's interesting that you say that it's super applicable information. One of the things I've run into personally, and also what I've heard is that people do have mentors that may be 10, 20 years older than them, and their advice may not be super applicable or they can't offer the right advice at the time because they can't remember it or they almost forget what it was like in that stage. So having someone your age and then five years ahead, perhaps, or just a, one step further Their information is a lot more applicable. I've never thought of it that way, but I think it's really useful for us to obviously understand that and then apply it. So the the thing I wanted to work into now, Chris, was just the first initial step of, of Nuff Said, actually getting into the business, deciding that you wanted to grow this business. What did that look like for you? What was that first initial step of actually growing the business was it finding a co-founder was it getting user testing from potential clients customers seeing if it was going to be a good enough idea to
1: pursue what did what did that look like when you decided this was it yeah my process which may not be relevant for for everyone but certainly it worked for me was i started with a very clear picture of what i wanted to do with this company Obviously, there are lots of, you know, you could create a really nice lifestyle business. You can create a hobby business. In my case, I wanted to b- build my home run Grand Slam business. So I wanted to oh, build yeah. something that was really, really, really big. Because of that, I knew that my company would need to raise a lot of money. And so what I did in the early days was I started with uh, a list. I probably had a 90, close to 90 business ideas, that I had been jotting down over the years and I needed to narrow that list down. So, I decided to hike the Camino de Santiago, which is a 550-mile hike across yeah. northern uh, across uh, starts in France and then across northern Spain to Santiago and then beyond to Finisterre. And on that journey, I spent a lot of time thinking about the types of businesses that I could be that I could get really excited about. I ran I was every day I was meeting you know 10 or 20 new people and I was running different ideas by different types of people to get their reactions so by the end of this trip I had you know hundreds of data points and a lot of time to think about what I wanted to build yeah. so I came back with three ideas and because, again I knew because I wanted to build a, a very big business I had to raise a lot of money so I started pitching my three ideas to investors to see which one got them the most excited after about ten meetings or so, it became very clear that of my three ideas, Nuff said was the one that everyone was really, really excited about, and I knew that was the one that I had to go build. Yeah. So once I knew that I had, once I knew I had the idea and I had the investors excited about it, then I had to go out and start with the team. And the way that I thought about building team was I looked at the things that I was very strong at, but also my areas of weakness. In my case, I'm a really, really good go-to-market leader, so I'm really great with sales and marketing especially, but I'm not as strong on product and engineering, so I brought on two co-founders to complement my skills, so I brought on Nick, who is my partner and head of product, and Hari, who is my partner and head of engineering, and they, the three of us together uh, had a, a, a very well-rounded set of skills to build an early-stage company. Cool. The- Once we had- Yeah. The one thing I wanted to,
0: to talk about before you move on. Sure. When you, when you got those nine or 10 investor pitches before you had a product, what did that process look like of getting those, those interviews or meetings with them? Did you email, did you go into like VC firms and just say, Hey, I'm here for my appointment. Didn't (laughs) have one. Just try to, just try to see some, some venture capitalists, but how did you, how did you get those? I'm curious because I think it's, it'd be applicable for us to kind of, do the same same process if we don't have anything, but we still want validation for it. I really asked this question at this point when Chris was telling the story, just because it gets more granular into how exactly the company started and what he did. Um, you know the kind of legwork he put in just to be able to take the first couple steps. I really wanted to understand how that all worked out, what kind of work he put in, so that we can understand, you know, the seconds and the minutes that he took out of his day to really get this started from zero to
1: one that's that's
0: where i cut him off and said hey look let's describe this a little bit
1: further it was really a combination of things sometimes it was cold outreach sometimes i was going onto linkedin to see if i had secondary degree connections to any to any of the investors in the firm some cases i got uh, introductions to a more junior person in the firm Someone who spends a lot of time prospecting for interesting companies in in the categories that I'm interested in, in the category I'm interested in building. I've set in, um, so it was uh, uh, there wasn't like a single go-to technique. It was just sending yeah. a lot of messages. I probably sent <laughs> 60 requests to get 10 yeses. I guess I was willing to hear no or get ignored a lot. But anyhow, after those, that, that's that's how I, I worked my up to uh, my way yeah. up to those first 10.
0: So continuing with obviously the story of Nuffset here, I wanted to bring up something that I found listening to the, the previous podcast you were on. From my knowledge, you were, you were a partner in a VC firm. I think, was this, was this while you were growing Nuffset or before you had started the company?
1: Yeah, it was, it was right after I left user testing. I took a year off to work at Inspiration Ventures Part of me was trying to figure out if, if VC was going to be the right path for me to take long-term for my career. A lot yeah. of it too, was just a chance for me to meet a lot of entrepreneurs, hear their stories, hear how they pitch their businesses, and also learn how early stage investors make investment decisions so that when it was my time to go pitch, I knew the game. I knew how the game was played and so that I, I could do a good job yep. of raising money for the company.
0: So your co-founders, I forgot their names, but there's two other ones they, how did they initially get into the company? What did you do to make sure that your story was enticing enough for them to come and join you grow this business? Was there anything special that you did to, to get these co-founders that complemented your skills, uh, accordingly was to so just tell us that story of how you, yeah. how you got them. And, and if it was crazy
1: or if it was not crazy, <laughs> just tell us about how you went about doing that. Well, maybe the most important thing is that they both said no to me when I first asked. I think part of it was in in the earliest days of the company, my thinking wasn't deep enough and I wasn't sophisticated enough in how I was talking about the vision and the problem to be solved. Mm -hmm. And so, and I think that came across in my initial pitches to them. But over the course of a couple months, as I made progress on on the business idea, as I had made progress on the the mock-ups and the sketches for what the product would look like, I it was it was much it was much easier for me to articulate what we were trying to do with the company. I was able to talk about how this company would become very, very large. And once I had developed that practice and that skill of talking about the company, I was able to go back to them both with a pitch that was compelling. I was able to tell a story about how this really could be a grand slam, enormous company. And I think that came across in my second or third pitch to each of them because they were willing to jump on board at that point. (laughs) So,
0: so this is applicable for obviously the younger entrepreneurs, people who are just interested in business, getting co-founders, getting people excited about your idea is obviously huge from what I've heard from other guests on the show. What are uh, for you, what are the two things that you would say are the most important to persuade people, get people excited about the idea? What should we work on at home uh, when we have free time to be able to harness this skill of just getting a team, getting excitement when all you're really doing is seeing if this idea will work. You're still kind of testing everything.
1: What should we do? What
0: are those two things we should focus on?
1: right i think we have to develop sophistication in thinking in three areas it's actually three areas it's around the product it's the customer and it's the size of the market probably the one as entrepreneurs that most of us are weakest at at least that's what i've seen in meeting with you know hundreds of entrepreneurs is sophistication in thinking around market size and what happens with most entrepreneurs is they say, oh, okay, well, let's see, I want to build a, uh, I want to build a women's clothing company. So what they'll do is they'll search for women's clothing company on Google, and, and they'll find an article that says, you know, Gartner says that women's clothing is a $39 billion market growing at 55% per year, <laughs> right? And they'll use yeah. that as their, you know, their pitch for why this could be in a really enormous company. The problem is that's a very lazy way of thinking about sizing up the, the the market. It shows a lack of sophistication on the customer, who the customer is, why the what the customer's problem is. As your thinking develops and as you become more sophisticated in your category, you start to do the next level, which which is to think about you know how many people are there exactly in your target market base and how much. You know, how severe is the problem that you're, you're solving for them and how much yeah. money would they pay to solve that problem? And so now you can start saying things like, okay, well, there's about, you know, there's about 12 million women in my category who uh, would spend an average of $350 per year to solve this particular problem around, I don't know, uh, hiking, you know, snow boots, since we we're talking about skiing earlier. So that's, you know, so now I can say, well, my market opportunity is, is actually this size. And that's a little bit better, but it's still not great. And then you get to the kind of the next level of sophistication of thinking of saying, okay, well, actually, we're not looking for all women who go skiing, we're looking for specifically for women who uh, go skiing, and they want to look good on the slopes, right? So they want to have the really nice boots that match the, you know, what they're mm-hmm. wearing up top. So because of that, you know, the market is a little bit smaller initially but we're going to be able to create a product that really solves their problem. We're going to, we're going to make a really cool, you know, snow boots that make you look like a rock star on the slopes. And they'll be able to, you'll be able to do your selfies and send them to all your friends. And so you say, you might say something like, okay, well, our initial target market is only 50,000, but with our success in that initial target market, we're going to expand into, we're going to, go from doing, you know, snow boots to X, which opens up this next target market, which is 250,000 people. And then with our success there, we're going to introduce a third product line, which gets us into a target market of, you know, 3 million people. And so that's how the product and the company evolves over time. And with each step, you know, each success, each win opens up market size and opportunity in adjacent areas or adjacent customer groups. Yeah. So that's, that's the kind of thinking that over time, I mean, one investors find that very impressive, but it's also something you can use to get people excited about. And that's one of the three categories that I mentioned, but it's, since it's the one that most of us are weakest at, that's what I focused on.
0: Yeah. And I think that any logical person can sit back and say, in that case, the numbers that are presented are more consistent. Like, you know, that they more, li- more likely than not will succeed based on your research and what you're thinking about. So, I'm assuming that's why investors really like to see that stuff is because you're you're just putting in work to make sure that your numbers are correct. So it's
1: actually just to, I'll clarify it's a little bit more than that. It shows a uh, depth of thinking around the customer, the customer's problem, yeah. how the problem will be solved. And how the market will develop over time. So it shows vision, customer understanding, and research. All three of those, I think, are compelling when giving a pitch to anybody. Exactly. So,
0: Chris, to move on in the story of the company Nef said, obviously, what was, just so that we can talk a little bit about when you grew a team, when you launched the business? What was, what was the next big checkpoint for you and the company? What did that look like? Just describe that story for us after you initially started the company and got the idea.
1: Well, the next the next touch point after having team in place was building enough of a product and a product story that where we could go out and raise some cash, the cash that we needed, frankly, to, to hire the engineering team that this company needed. Yeah. So what that process looked like for us was extensive customer interviews and user testing. So, and obviously I was, you know, as president of user testing, I'm very much a believer in that that product and uh, and that process. So what we ended up doing was we we hired talented designer who helped us iterate on the, the product designs that we were considering. So we started off with a product design. We actually started with several product designs and then we started showing them to users. And in the early iterations, people thought the product was terrible. There's some things we had gotten completely, some things we had gotten completely wrong. And then we'd iterate and we'd show another round of designs. And then over time, over these iterations, the problems that people were finding were smaller and smaller. And by the end, we could show a pro- the product designs to almost anyone, and they would speak very highly of it. And it took us about, in terms of numbers, it took us about 150 to 160 interviews before we got to that point. So. When we were at that level, now we had a product design fully kind of fully baked with a vision for what we wanted to build. And at that point, we felt comfortable going out and raising some initial cash for the business because we knew what we wanted to build. And we had a lot of conviction around it because we had gotten so much feedback along the way. Mm. So that, that's what that's when we went that that led to our next milestone, which was raising our first round <laughs> of cash.
0: So let's go, when you raised your first round of of cash, obviously to get more resources for the business to grow. When your first sale, your first customer in the business, describe to us how that all worked out, what what led up to it, how you initially got that meeting. Describe that story for us
1: here. Yeah, well do you want to, do you want to just, uh, jump past the fundraising stuff and go straight to customers? Let's go
0: straight to customers.
1: I okay. think that'd it be better. So maybe our, our customer story isn't all that interesting. And the reason why <laughs> is we're building a product that centralizes all of your work communication apps into a single mm-hmm. space. So you can import your Gmail, Slack, you know, in the future we'll have SMS and LinkedIn and, JIRA and Salesforce. So almost everyone is a potential customer of the product. And so the early days is just you reach out to your friends and get them to use the product first. And by the way, that's, that's important because you only get one shot to wow people. And if you show them an initial version of your product and they hate it, they're going to tell all their buddies, they're going to write bad stuff about you on social media. They're going to write bad reviews in the app store. So it's really, really important that your first, you know, a couple hundred <laughs> users are are the homies. You know, I've heard people say that exactly. the, the people that are close, so that they they're willing to give you that feedback directly without impacting the company's brand. Our first customers were all friends, all people that we were close with, people that we knew we would not bash the business. And then we started opening up once we felt like the product was in a good place, it didn't have as many bugs. Then we started opening up to our tier two contacts, which were people that we we had worked with before so coworkers but we didn't have like a friendship relationship so these are people who would still be closer to friendly but not but you know not like the the family and friends group yeah, not the homies <laughs> right not the homies <laughs> right <laughs> right and then now actually just as a company now we're just going beyond that to the people who um, we don't know at all so but people that we think we're going to do a really good job of solving their problem yeah. Um, on our on our website when people sign up we give additional priority to people who fill out a survey and as part of that survey we ask some questions that help qualify people that we think our product will be a really good fit for so we're good at selecting people who are likely great target target customers for our product in the early days
0: yeah so talking about obviously growing the customer, Base. For me, and what I've seen interviewing other people, it's kind of a compounding effect. Where first you start out with people that you that you know, and then you work your way into other like social media channels, or you're saying work into the tier two people that you know, but you're not really concerning them close friends. When you decided to move from the homies, right? You just you got those the the product out to those people. Were you implementing any other marketing strategy like social media? channels or YouTube ads? Were you thinking about that stuff after uh, the first iteration of getting it out to all your friends? What what were you thinking after that point of how you would grow other than just giving this to family friends?
1: Yeah, well, this is actually something I'm really, really good at. So I'll take a couple of minutes to, to explain my strategy yeah. here. So we started investing in our marketing program really early, probably six months before the company even launched. And by the way, everything that I'm about to share with you is my technique for a B2B company. I'd recommend something different for B2C. But yeah. so, so you know, for everyone who's listening in, what I'm about to share is more of a B2B playbook. It's not, it would not be applicable to the, uh, you know, to the women's uh, ski boot um, yeah. business. Um, so <laughs> what we did was we, we we decided as a company that we were going to launch a content marketing Engine. And content marketing takes a really, really ta- long time to spool up because it's organic. Yeah. People hear about it through word of mouth. And we decided that we were going to treat our content as its own product. And the reason why that's important is our marketing is designed so that every piece that you read will add value to your life in some way. And we do almost no promotion. In fact, I don't think we've done any promotion. Of our company in our marketing at all. So our goal is to build a brand around being a trusted, you know, a trusted advisor to people in our target market, offering content that's useful for uh, solving different types of business problems, of, of yeah. you know, how to think about solving like customer problems. And so we've invested heavily in content-related channels, which include things like. We have a really, really well, uh, well-read and distributed blog. So we have published really great pieces there. We have a newsletter that goes out every week. We have a podcast, a short format, format podcast, which means three to five minute long episodes. Uh, they get they get published every week. We have an interview series where we're interviewing top uh, C-level executives and publishing their thoughts on running teams. Occasionally, well, we're just we're just starting doing a, a webinar series. So. Um, this is a series where we're bringing in thought leaders around a, kind of a relevant topic in our target market space, and we're having discussions around how they solve different types of problems. So I think I kind of bucket all of those things under a yeah. content marketing engine. In general, B2B advertising is often not a great use of spend. It's actually better in B2C, like social media channels. So we've we've not done well we've done some testing on LinkedIn a little bit on Facebook, but in general, um, most companies that I talk to are not finding paid channels to be especially helpful in a B2B context.
0: So this was mostly this is the strategy because of what you've seen from other business owners doing B2B. The purpose of going through the content channels, having a or, or starting a webinar, doing a multiple podcasts was mostly because you've seen statistically that, using these social media channels wasn't the best for conversion is that correct or was there some other reason why you decided to take this route
1: yes partially it was because i saw other people do it partially it's because i had some success myself uh and part of it is just i just believe that this would be the right way you know kind of given today's climate of information overload this would be the right way to position our business to be differentiated significantly from anyone else that would come into our category Yeah.
0: So I want to get granular on how you actually got all this set up for the business when you decided to launch this sort of system for marketing. Was it complicated? I'm assuming that you're not the only one that's running, creating the blog posts, hosting the podcasts and and kind of managing all this stuff. So to to get started in in the beginning, when you wanted to implement this what were your next steps on how you'd accomplish that goal? Did you hire somebody? What, what was the, what, what were the next couple of steps just completing this vision?
1: Yeah. I mean, my step number one was I hired a marketer who I really trusted and, re- and respected um, Brooke. She's our head of marketing and she has led all of our marketing efforts for the last you know year or so. And she very much believed in and agreed with the, the vision of content marketing content as a product and creating value in all of our marketing uh, efforts. And so we were very well aligned there on the strategy that we were going to take. I mean, it's not rocket science. I mean, it's like yeah. you write your first blog post and you host it and you start promoting <laughs> it. You start promoting it on LinkedIn and then you do your first yeah. uh, podcast. I mean, it's, you know, and, the, and the, your first article gets like 10 reads because no one knows exactly. about you. So it's, that's, that's one of the opportunities. And also one of the challenges of content marketing is it it takes a long time. You can't, you can't expect to put out content and, and for people to start reading it, at least not until you build, you know, a reputation of being a company that consistently puts out really, really high quality content and a company that you'd want to follow. Yeah.
0: So with, with content marketing, uh, I'm, I wouldn't say I'm an expert in content marketing. I know that it takes effort to obviously get on the front page of Google, be able to show up high on the search rankings and stuff. So for you, what what was your strategy going about SEO and keyword optimization when you were thinking about doing this, going through the process of getting it done? how did you how did you set yourself up in the business uh, to properly do this and make sure everything was logistically right on the back end?
1: Yeah, I mean, just hosting uh, your website on a platform like WordPress or uh, one of these other ones—they'll take care of a lot of the SEO stuff for you. Oh, wow. um, the, the way that Google's the way that Google's content um, system works, obviously, they they penalize you for not having your SEO in place yeah. on your website. But mostly, the way that Google builds up reputation now is through linking. So Google wants to see links to your site from other high reputation sites. And so one of the reasons why content is very effective over time is you start to get linked to by people on social media, you get links on other blogs and other websites. And so that's how content over time helps you develop SEO because you end up earning your way to a lot of links where Google says, huh, this company is getting a lot of attention. They must be experts in this particular area yeah. so we're going to rank them a lot higher for searches there. So for SEO I spend a lot less time worrying about the mechanics of how the website's built. That's not how you build great SEO. The the, the best thing that you can do, the hardest thing but it's also the best thing you can do is build a lot of link inbound links to your site. Yeah. So Chris to get off
0: of the course of of the the growth of enough said, I want to get more general with just entrepreneur, entrepreneurial mentalities, and just success habits. So at the point we're at with your your story and your business, based on what you know and what you've gone through, what are a couple of the, the key attributes you'd say are most important if you're going to be speaking to somebody that's young, ambitious, wants to get into the business space? What are what are your two three I guess, sentences or main points that you would say to them, uh, that they should really hone in on to make sure that they can be success as well in the space.
1: Some of it overlaps with what we've already discussed, but I would say kind of strategy. Number one is absolute obsession with your customer. What a lot of entrepreneurs do is they get obsessed about their product and its features and all of its bells and whistles. And i like to talk about what the product can do. Um, the problem with that is you fall in love with the product and not with the customer. So I, don't, I guess Sounds what I'm great. saying is make sure that if you're going to fall in love, fall in love with the customer and their problem. Don't fall in love with your product because your product, you're going to get it wrong. In fact, your first 10 versions of the product will be terrible. <laughs> um, and you have to be willing to throw it all away because you love the customer so much and you want so much to solve the customer's problem. So I think that's number one. And also by falling in love with the customer's problem, you'll you'll actually take the time you'll invest the time that it takes to really deeply understand that problem, which will increase the chances that you'll build the right product to solve that problem and for the right person. So that's number one. Number two is, this probably comes a little bit after starting the company, but having, being very clear about what your values are as an entrepreneur and what types of values you want to encourage within your company. Because from the very early days of interactions with your with your um, founding team, you're going to start to create norms and habits for how you work together, how you make decisions, how you build relationships with each other, your working patterns, how many hours, you know, you you're working per day, you know, work ethic. And so being super clear about those values up front is critical because you will both communicate them to your, your, uh, your co-founders and your investors, but most importantly, you will communicate them to people that you hire and you'll build the right culture uh, the culture that is set up to succeed. If you don't invest that time up front, what you, what will end up happening is the the culture will evolve organically, and you'll lose control. You'll you'll have a culture, it just won't be the one that you wanted. Yeah. So those are probably the two things that people probably don't think about much, but are really really important for me.
0: So because we're on this topic, I I do want to bring up a little bit more about it. Is just company culture and values uh, that the company just holds in general with the employees, personalities, Yeah, for, for someone that sits here and thinks about if I'm going to be running a 50 plus employee company, what, what based on what, you know, what, what would they do to make sure that everything is run, how they would like it to be run? Are there specific strategies or different points that founder has to hit to be able to accomplish this? what would you say are those points if there are points or what would you just say in general to that?
1: Yeah. Well, there's kind of, um, I think some, some of this is kind of a personal, you know, uh, what's personal to you, how much control and power and authority do you want over what's going on in your company? Obviously as the CEO, you are accountable For everything that happens in your company, including successes and failures. So some people approach that in they want to be, you know, they're, they're super controlling, they want to be involved in every decision. And there's generally a lack of trust between them and their employees that just don't believe that people will make as good of a decision as they would make. And actually it's in a lot of cases that's true because as a CEO, you have access to a lot more information. You get to see across the whole company, you know your customers really well and you will make the best decision because you have all the data and all the pieces that you need to make those decisions. One of the strategies I've seen for for, um, CEOs who are control freaks and have a hard time delegating and giving up control is regular push reporting. And what I mean by that is setting up touch points with your team where information is pushed to you on a regular basis. You don't have to go asking for it. So you don't become a micromanager, but the information that you need is pushed to you about what's going on in the company. So this could be uh, weekly reports about, uh, how the business is operating. It could be monthly goals, like a punch list where everyone is signing up to do a certain amount of things every month. And that gets reported back out to you, uh, once a month. Um, it could be, um, Metrics, uh, metrics dashboards for your websites or uh, your product through uh, uh, sell through your margin, your NPS scores. So you can have metrics that are delivered to you on a regular basis. And also on projects that you're running, you can set up touch points with your key executives or your, your key managers at the company who are expected to give you updates on progress at certain milestones so that you don't have to be breathing over people's shoulders. So push reporting is often used as a tactic to get the information that you need without having to, uh, and and maybe uh, you you will still have um, access to the information that you need so you can interject yourself when you need to, but also give people the freedom and the flexibility to operate as best they can.
0: Yeah, wow. So a couple of last questions here for you, Chris, that I wanted to ask. One being if someone listening to the show, just younger entrepreneur, uh, loves everything about business, right? They they stop the episode right where it's at, and then they walk out the door, kind of go about their life, do whatever they want, right? What, if they're going to act on the information that they heard today, what would you say to them that they should do right after they walk out the door to start on that right path? What is that first step that they should do? read a book, another podcast for you. What is that first step that they? Yeah,
1: none of that. It's actually do something. <laughs> it's take that first step, a fail at something. That's actually, that's the, that's what you should go do. Go start a company and totally screw it up because you're going to learn a lot fr- more from your mistakes than you will from your successes. And each, each mistake will help, will give you a new skill. It'll give you confidence that you can go out and do that step. You'll learn what you want to do differently next time. You'll have a stronger, stronger opinion of what you want to do next time. So if you're an entrepreneur, go take whatever the next step is in your business. Design the product. Talk to some customers. Uh, go do a fundraising pitch. Build a deck. Try to, you know, try to get that first customer on the product. Just go do something on your company and just totally, just screw it up really badly. Just mm-hmm. you know, be a, an absolute failure. But go out and do it because that will help you take that first step towards becoming an entrepreneur and all of us fail. In fact, all of us fail a lot of times. And so (laughs) it's good to build that habit now of failing a lot and being told no a lot because it comes with the job, it comes with the territory and it'll help you build confidence over time.
0: Yeah. I think action is the keystone to success. I believe, I mean, if there were two keystones, I would say action and persistence from what I've heard from everybody on the show but definitely action is a huge one. So everybody's got to listen to Chris here. And and on that note, if you do have any links, Chris, where we can find you just to find some more information about you or the, the company, shoot those out now, and then we can uh, say goodbye.
1: Sounds great. Probably the easiest thing for you to do is to find me on LinkedIn where I'm most active. So if you search for Chris Hicken on LinkedIn, the easiest way to remember my name is my first initial C plus my last name Hicken spells chicken. So I do have chicken at gmail.com. So it'll be easy for you to remember remember that name and go find me. I'm the uh, co-founder and CEO of Nuff Said. So you're welcome to, to connect there or follow. If you have any questions as an entrepreneur, you're welcome to send them my way.
0: Cool. Guys, Chris Hicken, uh, Nuff Said. Definitely check him out and what he is doing. Uh, Chris, it was a pleasure to have you on the show. And it was, it was great to
1: meet you. Likewise, Josh. Really appreciate you hosting us. Of course.
0: I hope you guys enjoyed this episode with Chris Hicken. I uh, hope you found something useful out of our conversation here. Uh, for me personally, I did find a couple points specifically interesting, so whatever it might have been, I hope that it will help you moving forward. Don't forget to subscribe to the show, share it with a friend group. Like I mentioned before, it really helps me get this information to people that want to listen to it. Uh, but other than that stuff I will see all you guys on the next episode so peace